Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Hello, I'm Tony DeMari from UC San Diego, and I'm pleased to be the moderator for this session on cardiac stem cells. And there's been a great deal of excitement about stem cells for cardiovascular disease, and people ask me why. And on the left, you see the major anatomical causes of heart disease, and on the right, potential therapies. And you'll see that for most diseases, we have pretty decent therapies. We have stents for coronary disease and very good prosthetic valves and good surgeons and defibrillators for, for arrhythmias. But if the muscle, the heart muscle itself, is uh, destroyed, then we don't have very good therapy. And this slide shows an example of that. This is the kind of patient we were uh, worried about. On the left is the heart of a normal individual, and on the right, uh, uh, a patient with advanced heart failure where the muscle is destroyed, the ventricle is dilated, and it's poorly contractile. Of course, uh, um, to apply stem cells, there's a number of questions we need to ask. And, uh, for many of them, we still don't have uh, full answers. Why, why do these stem cells remain undifferentiated and self-duplicating? What triggers them to become this, the organ that they ultimately become? Nevertheless, we proceeded on some clinical trials. This is just one of a whole host. I'll show you quickly because I happen to be involved where... Uh, uh, the use uh, of a stem cell product actually enhanced uh, an endpoint of death in cardiovascular hospitalizations in heart failure patients compared to controls. But of course, then the question is, how did this come about? And we would love to think that there's tissue regeneration, but unfortunately haven't been able to of find evidence of that. So increasingly, we've looked for other mechanisms, uh, paracrine mechanisms, uh, where growth factors um, might be affected or, or uh, proteins that would enhance blood vessel uh, development, uh, something that would modulate immunity, and uh, look for alternate mechanisms and alternate applications of stem cells. And today we have some spectacular um, uh, discussions of um, the use of, of stem cells in cardiovascular uh, disease and medicine uh, that is uh, clearly enhancing our understanding of the application of these cells and providing new applications for them. So the first presentation will be by Deepak Srivastava uh, on cellular reprogramming approaches for heart disease, followed by Mark McCullough uh, on induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes for predicting and removing drug cardiotoxicity um, and there's lots of drug cardiotoxicity that we're encountering. And lastly, Deborah Liu on the quest for pacemaking cardiomyocytes to engineer biopacemakers.
uh, next session is going to be about cardiac stem cells. And we're delighted to be able to welcome Pat Farrant, who has a really interesting story and is going to be talking to us about heart disease and his involvement in, in stem cell research. Uh, Pat, your introduction to the world of stem cell research and to the world of heart disease came rather suddenly, didn't it? Uh, yes, it did. Uh, not exactly a planned event. I had been ignoring some warning signs and probably was not paying attention to uh, what I've learned is a, uh, a vital component, which is to genetic base to heart disease. My father had passed away at age 61, and that's what, that's what I experienced. So I learned how to get fast action in an emergency room. You just go in and say, I'm experiencing chest pains. I'm 61 years old. That's the same age my father died. So uh, right away, I got into the hospital, and shortly thereafter, uh, I guess I crashed, and their blood pressure dropped, and uh, they so they had to do surgery at midnight till five in the morning. I told at one point I was down to my last two hours as uh, an, a main artery, the LAD, left anterior descending artery, had closed, and um, but um, came through five hours later, and uh, that was 15 years ago. Wow. Well, we're delighted you're here to join us. I know since then that you've been really active and engaged in kind of advocacy and support groups for, for, for heart disease. Talk a bit about that. Yes, indeed. I, uh, uh, working closely with my cardiologist, she felt I was making a spectacular recovery. And she said, I really should talk with other heart patients and heart disease in general, but other heart patients about what to expect in recovery and what they have to do to get their lives back. So I called the American Heart Association locally here in San Jose, and they asked me if I like to lick envelopes or if I like to get involved in fundraising, and neither one of those particularly appealed to me, so they said they had an affiliate organization called Mended Hearts, a heart patient organization. Uh, we currently have about 40,000 members so I became involved. Uh, we visit heart patients, quarter million heart patients throughout America each year. I became involved at the local level as a chapter, vice president, president, and then regionally as a regional director of the area, and then the entire, and then I served on the board of directors um, as a vice president and was elected to be executive vice president of about a 40,000 member organization. Uh, we primarily visit patients in their rooms. We just introduce ourselves as saying, we have something in common with you. We've had a personal experience with cardiovascular disease. And I know that one of those experiences where you were in the room, you saw exactly how difficult it is for patients to make decisions. I mean, there's a real time pressure, obviously, because of the heart condition, um, but also conflicting information. So tell us that story. Well, it was... Um, um, in an innocent way that I happened to be in this patient's room when the surgeon, uh, the cardiovascular, cardiovascular surgeon showed up, cardiothoracic surgeon, excuse me, and he was uh, the patient, they hadn't decided on what the course of action was going to be or the treatment, so he gave quite a presentation on the benefits and values of open heart surgery. And uh, I happened to be back in that same patient's room where later in the day, an interventional cardiologist came in and went through all of the benefits of an intervention by of putting a stent. And, and really, 
I felt wasn't giving, in terms of informed consent of giving the patient the data, the information they needed to make a decision, it really it sounded almost to me like they were pitching both of uh, the things that they did one over the other. And the patient actually asked me what I, you know, what I would do. Well, I could obviously I can't give medical advice. And I told him he needs to talk with a, a, a cardiologist because he was, um, you know, it, it had to be decided that the, the treatment was going to proceed the next day. And I uh, didn't have a chance to talk with a cardiologist and was put in a very awkward situation, I felt, and also was somewhat in a bit of a drug haze with the medical treatment he was giving. So it it made for, um, uh, I, I felt, just a kind of an awkward situation of two different uh, procedures being promoted to them and then saying, so now what, what do you want to do? Yeah, obviously, it's a really, it's a critical time, obviously, for the patient. And obviously, informed consent and good information is a really, is a really challenging thing for someone to, to be able to grasp in that situation. Um, since then, you've become um, involved with a CAP, what we call a clinical advisory panel, helping guide from the patient's perspective um, some of the heart disease research we're funding. Talk a bit about your experience with that. I mean, do you, how important do you think the patient's perspective is? I'm on the board there, and it's uh, it's a bit of a difficult situation. And these are all uh, cardiac researchers, you know, highly trained, highly educated. Uh, and in fact, I I started out by thanking them for uh, studying hard and getting a good uh, a good grade in organic chemistry, which probably helped them get into medical school. And I thank them for their field of for their choice for the field of study. Uh, medicine and furthermore cardiology. So I said, you know, speaking on behalf of some 40,000 patients, we thank you for how you've committed your life uh, doing research in cardiac disease and and uh, heart failure. Um, I ha- have a difficult time following uh, a lot of what they're saying because it's all better, and they understand that I'm, you know, just an average um, uh, person without medical training, but I try to uh, look up as many words as I can as they're talking and follow what they're saying. Heart um, heart failure and what they're looking at in terms of regenerating uh, stem cells, regenerating cells for stage two, stage three heart failure, damaged hearts, um, isn't uh, uh, more of a heart disease person, not a heart failure person, but I'm following what it is that they're uh, how to design the research and all that's involved, and uh, also learn to appreciate the various steps that have to be taken to get FDA approval for human trials. Uh, this particular study out of Stanford isn't uh, isn't at human trials yet, but um, we're certainly look. I wouldn't be a candidate for that because I don't heart failure is not my thing. But you know, I just uh, but I guess one thing that came up is that. Uh, when they were prior to getting to uh, human trials, I said, well, I just asked them out of curiosity, I said, what if there are some complications here in terms of the the um, patient having complications following this these gem cells and involved hospitalizations, et cetera? So I just asked them, who would pay? And I could kind of tell by the nervous looks going around that room that hadn't exactly been <laughs> established yet. I mean, it's, it's funded by a grant from uh, the state of California and uh, the PI, the principal investigators at Stanford. And the, I think the answer to, well, our various attorneys will look at this and that will be decided. 
And that's great. And that's why we love having patient advocates on these panels, because you ask the questions that maybe they hadn't thought about, but they need to as they get ready for a clinical trial. Uh, well, that's all we have time for. Pat, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your experiences with us and for being on a, a clinical advisory panel. I know that the contribution you make, you downplay it a little bit, but it's really essential for, to make these projects as successful as they possibly can be. So that's all from us for now. We'll go into the cardiac stem cell session, but we'll be meeting more patient advocates later. So I'll see you then. It's a pleasure to speak at the 2020 CIRM grantee meeting. And I should say before I start that all of the work that I'll present to you today uh, was funded by CIRM over the last many years and would not have advanced to the point that I'll show you in the absence of that funding. And both stories uh, rely on a cellular reprogramming approach to address human forms of heart disease. And in both cases, we've leveraged cardiac developmental networks to either uh, regenerate damaged hearts by reprogramming resident cardiac fibroblasts to cardiomyocyte-like cells, or to understand mechanisms of disease using human iPS cells and uh, then followed by drug discovery. In the first story, we have leveraged the fact that the human heart is made up half of actually cardiac fibroblast and less than half of myocytes. And the cardiac fibroblast are the ones that support cardiac muscle cells, but also are the ones that are activated to form scar tissue, as you see in this section of this heart here. And because the human heart and mammalian heart in general has very little, if any, capacity to regenerate, once cells are lost after damage, as you see here, uh, there's no capacity to regenerate. And so we... Uh, over the years attempted to reprogram these resident cardiac fibroblasts into new cardiomyocytes right where they are in an effort to regenerate damaged hearts. And uh, to make a long story short, over the years we were able to find that the combination of these three key developmental transcription factors, GATA4, TBX5, and MEF2C were sufficient to reprogram uh, cardiac fibroblast into cardiomyocyte-like cells that we called induced cardiomyocytes, or ICMs. And this was relatively inefficient in vitro on plastic, but could be done. Uh, but in vivo in mice, we found that this was quite efficient, and these resulting cells were most similar to adult ventricular heart cells. They could electrically couple with one another, which was key for improving cardiac output. And in fact, when measured by MRI, these mice did in fact have a significantly improved cardiac uh, function. This is an example of what those hearts look like after coronary ligation, followed by a gene therapy mediated delivery of these three transcription factors. Uh, following Three months later, you, one can sacrifice the hearts. And if you look at the apex uh, cross-section around this level, you see abundant scar in the control, less so at the further up in the heart. And in comparison, mice treated with this gene therapy approach had abundant muscle, even at the apex, as you can see here. And we can we have fluorescently labeled with a Cree-based system the fibroblast and can see that all of these are actually newly formed cardiomyocytes. We, of course, asked, will the same combination work in, in human cardiac fibroblast? And it turns out that uh, in human cardiac fibroblast, replacing GATA4 with myocardin, a transcriptional co-activator for MEF2C actually uh, was sufficient now to reprogram 
human cardiac fibroblast into cardiomyocyte-like cells. And you see an example of a beautifully reprogrammed cell here with these sarcomeres indicated with alpha cardiac alpha actin. Uh, and, uh, and so we, this combination we then tested in vivo, uh, in pigs to see if they, which is, has a heart more similar to the size of humans, uh, where, and in vitro, this combination also reprogrammed pig cardiac fibroblast. And using an AAV now a vector to deliver these three factors, uh, we injected these into pig hearts after coronary occlusion and co-injected them with a retrovirus uh, expressing DSRED because a retrovirus will only infect dividing cells and myocytes don't divide. So it would allow us to mark the non-myocytes that were infected by virus, uh, sometimes co-infected with the AAV, uh, and then we can ask whether there are DSRED positive cells that now have sarcomeres suggesting that these might be newly born cardiomyocytes. And you can see here in this uh, high magnification section that there are a number of uh, cells with beautiful sarcomeres that are also red, uh, suggesting that these uh, may be newly reprogrammed cardiomyocytes. Uh, and you can see that a little bit more easily here with the, just the DS red channel in white. Uh, and so you can see that this is a fairly efficient reprogramming event in vivo. Uh, and uh, so this was very encouraging that we might be able to generate enough cardiomyocytes uh, to actually make a difference. And this is in the border zone of the uh, damaged area. And so with this uh, information, all, all supported by CIRM, particularly the PIG translational studies, uh, we have uh, put this uh, technology into a startup company called Tanaya Therapeutics that was launched with the 50 million Series A financing with the Column Group in 2016, followed by a Series B event uh, last year, and they are uh, advancing this towards clinical trials. And over the years, they have uh, refined the technology and the genetic material that would be delivered as well as a vector and uh I'll just show you one uh, slide from Tanaya with their approval that shows you a cohort of pigs, around 10 pigs, either treated with the uh, gene therapy AV or control. Uh, and in blue, you can see that there's a marked improvement in the ejection fraction in these pigs uh, compared to the controls in gray. And this degree of improvement of 11% absolute ejection fraction improvement is really quite significant. And uh, would be clinically meaningful, particularly for those who might be waiting for on a, on a transplant list uh, to potentially be able to avoid a need for a transplanted, transplanted heart. And so we're very excited about uh, Tanaya pushing this forward, and we continue to collaborate with them uh, to advance this technology. Now, in the uh, second story I wanted to share with you, as I mentioned, it's really one about uh, uh, understanding disease mechanism and doing drug discovery with uh, iPS cells. And this story relates to a family shown here where this multi-generation family had a very common form of heart disease called calcification of the aortic valve that looks something like this, where the aortic valve becomes hard and calcified requiring replacement surgically. And about 100,000 replacements are done a year just in the United States, so it's very common disease. The etiology hasn't been known, uh, and there's no currently no medical therapy. We do know that about a, 
uh, in cases where people are born with a congenital anomaly, where there are only two leaflets instead of three in the aortic valve, like you see here, something we call a bicuspid aortic valve, uh, that about a third of those individuals will develop calcification as they age into their third, fourth, fifth, and sixth decades of life. And this congenital anomaly is actually the most congenital anomaly of all. It affects one to two percent of the population. It turns out this family had both bicuspid aortic valve and calcification as they got older, and it's caused by a heterozygous loss of function mutation in the very well-studied transcription factor NOTCH1. And so having identified the genetic cause of this, we were able to use uh, isogenic CRISPR uh, uh, gene-edited, gene-corrected IPS cells from this family to deeply understand the mechanism. And it turns out that what we found is that normally notch one, which sits on the cell membrane, is in a position to sense shear stress. And its job is to normally repress osteogenic pathways uh, in the endothelial lining of the valve. And, and we know that the endothelial cells of the valve can transdifferentiate and become mesenchymal cells and go to the valve. And, and there, that's where uh, this notch is playing a role in preventing uh, this osteogenic fate. So essentially, the, what we found is that in the setting of haploinsufficiency, uh, what happens is, is endothelial cells undergo more EMT and become more osteogenic. So it's essentially a cellular reprogramming event from an endothelial cell to a more osteogenic-like cell. And this we were able to discover through a deep interrogation of these IPS-derived endothelial cells, as shown here, uh, that resulted in deep understanding of the gene network that gets dysregulated. And it turns out that the network narrows down to three key transcription factors, SOC7, TCF4, and SMAD1, that are central players that then dysregulate a host of other genes uh, that results in this cell fate switch, if you will. And so that gave us the thought that maybe we could drug this process. And so we screened a a library of 1,600 highly curated compounds. uh, And instead of looking for one, two, or three outputs, we screened for 120 genes in the network that were dysregulated with each molecule. And we used a machine learning approach to classify cells as either normal or abnormal and asked what drugs might reclassify abnormal cells. And from this, we found six hits that actually had uh, resulted in this change in classification. Uh, I'm just showing you here how what this output looks like. In blue, these blue dots are wild type cells, normal cells. Green dots are uh, what the machine learning algorithm classified as heterozygous cells. And in red are what the algorithm classified as either uh, normal or abnormal. Here you can see that most of the drugs do nothing. They still cluster with the green and so are still heterozygotes. However, you'll see that there are a few uh, red dots that are now clustering with the blue dots, and these are what our hits are, uh, suggestive of a drug that is shifting uh, this profile broadly. And so uh, we have taken these uh, six hits and tested them in vivo in a mouse model we generated where the uh, by shortening the telomeres in notch one heterozygous mice to be more like human telomere length, we can actually recapitulate the human phenotype of a calcified and obstructed aortic valve. And so I'm showing you here by echocardiography in these mice 
the aortic valve peak velocity V, which reflects the aortic valve stenosis, very similar as occurs to in humans. This is partially penetrant, but you see in the control, uh, a number of these mice have acceleration of the blood flow across the valve indicative of stenosis, both of the aortic valve and pulmonary valve. And one of the six drugs uh, shown here had a remarkably uh, remarkable effect in completely preventing, uh, in a statistically significant way, aortic valve stenosis in the vast majority of mice, as you can see here, as well as preventing pulmonary valve stenosis. And uh, by histology, these uh, drugs, this drug also prevented thickening of the aortic valve and calcification of the aortic valve. So we think we've got a drug that we discovered in human iPS cells that uh, works in, uh, in iPS cells to change, dis alter the dysregulation and works in vivo. Now, finally, we asked, uh, would this drug also affect uh, those who don't have notch one mutations as a cause? And to do this, we collected, we worked with the group in Russia who had collected primary aortic valve endothelial cells from explanted human aortic valve uh, uh, samples, either with uh, three-leaflet calcification or two-leaflet calcification. And we exposed all of these endothelial cells to the drug and then did RNA sequencing. And I'm just showing you here the most important result of the most important factors, these three sort of master transcription factors that we know are uh, causing the broad gene dysregulation. And in each case, uh, the this drug restored the uh, corrected the upregulation uh, seen in the disease valves endothelial cells to normal whether we're looking at SOC7 TCF4 or SMAD1 and it didn't matter whether they're tricuspid or bicuspid valves we saw the same things in the abnormal cells and those were corrected by the drug and so we're very excited that uh, through this approach we actually have a potential drug candidate, which would be the first that uh, works in mice and works in broader populations of human aortic valve cells. And we're considering now how to advance this uh, towards a clinical trial. So with that, I'll close and thank the members of my laboratory that contributed to this work, uh, including former lab members and our collaborators, and of course, our, our important funding from CIRM. Uh, and with that, I'll be happy to take questions at the end of this session. Thank you very much. Hello, my name is Mark Mercola. I'm a professor of cardiovascular medicine at Stanford University. It's a pleasure to talk to you about using induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs, for predicting and removing drug cardiotoxicity. This work has been supported for many years by CIRM. We're very grateful for that work in establishing this platform in my laboratory. So what is drug-induced cardiotoxicity? This is the unintended adverse effect of medicines on the electrical and or the mechanical function of the heart. This can be a very major problem for certain areas of medicine, such as oncology, where as many as a third of the patients who have been treated with oncology drugs will develop some form of heart disease as a consequence of their treatment. It's also a major problem for pharmaceutical companies. It's the major reason for drug attrition, drug failure during the development, and in some cases, even after market launch. So we are using iPS cells to try to address this problem. So what iPS cells are cells that we can derive from your skin or your blood, any other cell type in your body basically, by reprogramming them back to an embryological state. This is, was first done by Shinya Yamanaka 
based on work done by John Gurdon years before. And this and the technology for this won them the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 2012. So once we have iPS cells, which resemble cells of the early embryo, we can direct their differentiation to different cell types in the body, such as heart muscle cells, brain cells, kidney cells, intestinal cells, and so on. And so you are able then to study disease because, of course, these cells retain the genetics of the original person, so the person has a genetic disease. You hope that some manifestation of that disease will be reproduced in the laboratory. And we can also study the effect of drugs on those cells. So using this platform, then, the work that I'm going to tell you about create, uses, I, creates muscle cell, heart muscle cells, and you can see that in the video on the slide. We treat those heart muscle cells with drugs or drug candidates, and in order to predict the adverse effects that those molecules will have on the heart, as well as to understand the influence of patient genetics, some people are much more susceptible than others to the adverse effect of drugs, and we also would like to use this platform to engineer safer drugs. So my talk today will be divided into three parts. I'll first talk about our recent work to develop efficient means of producing and increasing the fidelity of disease modeling in iPS cells. Secondly, I'll talk about using this platform to optimize an existing drug for a cardiac electrophysiologic disorder. And thirdly, I'll talk about our work to re-engineer an oncology drug to diminish its adverse effects. I'll start with the first part, producing cardiomyocytes efficiently and making better disease models. So when we began this work with serum funding back in 2008, it was only possible to make small numbers of cardiomyocytes, certainly nothing that could be used in high-throughput drug screens. So with grants from the serum to John Cashman, a medicinal chemist at the Human Biomolecular Institute, and to me, at this, and I was in those days at the Sanford Burnham Prebis and Institute and at UCSD in San Diego, we developed a screening platform where we could look for compounds that would drive stem cells, in those days embryonic stem cells, to form cardio, cardiac muscle cells. And we hit upon a number of compounds that would do this. One of them is shown here. And these molecules are now the basis of nearly all efficient protocols to produce cardiomyocytes. More recently, we've been using this platform to advance the maturity of cardiomyocytes, uh, iPS cardiomyocytes. These cells, when they, if we form them in conv by conventional means, are similar to cells of a very, very early embryo for a few weeks, a month or so into gestation. And that hampers disease modeling, so, which, of course, we're interested in the adult. So we learned that if we switch the energy substrates that the cells burn, so rather than burning sugar, they, we switch them to fat and other substrates, now we can drive the metabolic, the structural, and the electrophysiological aspects of their maturation, and that improves their ability to model diseases, as exemplified by dilated cardiomyopathy or an electrophysiological disorder, long QT syndrome type 3. So now, in the rest of the talk, I'm going to talk about our efforts to use this platform for drug re-engineering. And the idea here is to make a better version of a drug that has some adverse effect on the heart of a patient that limits the, either the dosing or compromises the patient's health. And so the idea is that we would create heart cells from these people who have problems with some drug. We would then, in the dish, visualize the effect of that drug on the heart cells. And then we would, using high-throughput screens, using robotic platforms, such as what you're seeing in the video, we would then develop better versions of those drugs, understand what to tweak in the drug to make it safer. 
and yet retain its activity. And that would then return that, the idea would be to return that drug through a pharmaceutical development pipeline back to the patient. But the problem when we wanted, when we started this, it was a rather audacious goal because IPS cardiomyocytes had never been used to drive a drug development campaign, certainly not patient cells where we were looking at a patient phenotype. So the question that we were all wondering is, will these assays in this platform be statistically robust enough to drive a medicinal chemistry exploration of a drug? And so we needed a test case. So with a Serum Early Translation 4 grant that was awarded to John Cashman and myself, we set about to re-engineer a drug that's used um, for a cardiac electrophysiology disorder, long QT3, and the drug was mixilatine. Um, we also in, uh, were grateful for the support of physiologists in New York and in Chicago, their labs of Rocky Cass and Al George. So what is long QT type 3? It's a rare genetic disease that causes ventricular tachycardia and sudden cardiac death, most commonly in teenagers and young adults. Its hallmark is that it has a prolongation of the QT interval on the surface electrocardiogram. Now, mixilatine will shorten that QT interval and thereby reduce the risk that the patient will develop a lethal arrhythmia. But the problem is that mixilatine at slightly higher doses than what's achieved in patients can also induce electrical problems in, a, in heart muscle cells. And although this isn't a huge problem clinically because these patients are very well managed, it nonetheless has induced concerns that it might induce or aggravate an arrhythmia. So even though it's not such a huge clinical problem, it's a wonderful test case for this platform because we can see the electrophysiological um, problems of cardiomyocytes quite clearly in these IPS cardiomyocyte assays. So we needed a patient. So Rocky Cass in New York and his clinical collaborators had identified a boy born with a particularly serious form of long QT3. He was actually diagnosed in utero and implanted with a dual chamber ICD that you can see here to control his, arrhythm his uh, arrhythmia. You can see the prolongation of the QT interval on the electrocardiogram, and he was treated uh, with mixilatine and responded quite well. So we then made IPS cardiomyocytes from this boy, and we wanted to record their electrical activity. And it's much like what is done in clinic with an electrocardiogram, but we do it optically, and you can see the beating of the cardiomyocytes, and here you can see a normal electrical activity of cardiomyocytes, and here you can see a rhythmic activity where you get a prolongation of the action, so-called action potential, and you get these extra spikes known as early after depolarizations. So using this platform and using IPS cardiomyocytes made from the boy, we were able to run through libraries of structural analogs of mixilatine and identify what would be the good and the bad determinants in those structures. So we were looking for molecules that would shorten the action potential, but mixilatine on its own, when you give it at too high doses, will cause prolongation and these after depolarizations, and that's bad. What we were able to do eventually was find four molecules that, that would uh, only shorten, but even at high concentrations, would not prolong. So we pr produced a safer version of the drug. And this molecule has worked in studies to block uh, the arrhythmia caused by long QT3. Now, uh, emboldened by that, we now set, apart, set out to do which is really what I've always wanted to do, which is to re-engineer on oncology drugs. These are, as I said, a serious problem. About a third of cancer survivors will suffer cardiac problems as a consequence of their treatment. It's not just old cancer drugs, but even the new molecularly targeted therapeutics that have this problem. We assembled a, a large team 
uh, co-directed by a medicinal chemist, Sanjay Malhotra at Stanford, and Ioannis Karakaikis, a stem cell biologist at Stanford. And these are the postdoctoral fellows, the trainees who worked on this project. So the drug we focused on was panotinib. It's used to treat chronic myelogenous leukemia because it inhibits the oncogene known as BCR ABLE. Now, BCR ABLE is mo in its normal form is inhibited by a, a, a relative of panotinib known as amotinib. That's that is a safe molecule. But unfortunately, a large number of patients under have a mutation that arises in the, in the BCR ABLE gene, and that mutation renders the the, the protein insensitive to amotinib and all other first-line defense drugs for CML. Panotinib is the only effective drug against this mutation that's been approved. So whereas amotinib is safe, as I told you, panotinib is cardiotoxic. 8% of people who've taken it have developed heart failure. Many more have developed heart disease. But since amotinib is safe, we thought the, the problem with panotinib is an off-target effect. So we wanted to remove it. And the IPS platform is ideal for this because we don't need to know the actual reason why the drug is bad. We just need to know that it has bad effects that we can see in the dish. It's difficult to know the exact reason because these molecules target many, many proteins in the cell, at least 50 structurally related molecules to, to the BCR ABLE gene, and as many as three or four times as many non-kinase targets. So... Um, what we did was we took the structure of panotinib, we started tweaking parts of the compound in order to map the parts of the molecule that are important for its anti-tumor effects and important for the cardiotoxic effects of the drug. And we were guided by the structures of the relatively safe compound, amotinib. So we synthesized many analogs in an iterative process and tested them in parallel in RPS cardiomyocytes, in vascular cells, which form tubes, and in the tumor cells, both normal uh, BCR-ABLE and mutated BCR-ABLE. And the idea was to define the structural determinants for the good and the bad aspects of panotinib. And to cut to the chase, I'm going to show you ex two examples of improved molecules. And in this heat map representation here, red is bad and white is, is safe. And these are different indices of cardiotoxicity in the dish. Amotinib is white, so safe. Panotinib is red, so bad. And to these two analogs here, you can see are mostly white. And yet, when we, and we, and we can see that on the endothelial tumor uh, vasculogenesis assay, you can see that they do not disrupt the vasculature, whereas panotinib does, even at high doses. And yet, they continue to block the, the um, growth of the tumor cells. The smaller number indicates better inhibition of the tumor. And so our new drugs, like panotinib, will inhibit and even the mutant tumors with a mutant kinase, they will also inhibit. So, and this works not only in vitro, those prior data were in vitro, but it also works in vivo if we have tumors, human tumors in mice. And by treating with panotinib or with our new drugs, we can reduce the tumor burden substantially. So what I've told you then is that in parallel, using cardiomyocytes, vascular assays, and tumor assays, we could engineer a safer version of the CML drug panotinib. We learned that there are different determinants for the good and bad aspects of the molecule, and that the new molecules that we've produced retain the anti-cancer effect, but have decreased cardiotoxic effects in vitro, and they have acceptable properties to go into animals, and they show anti-tumor activity against in xenograft models comparable to panotinib, but without the cardiotoxicity. This work, as I said, has been supported by SIRM funding specifically for these projects throughout the 10-year history, as well as it's been aided by SIRM training grants 
uh, to the Sanford Burnham, the Scripps Institute, the Salk Institute, and the University of California at San Diego. I directed the training grant of the Sanford Burnham. It's also been aided by serum infrastructure grants to the three those three institutions in San Diego. Thank you very much. I am Deborah Liu. Um, I'm from UC Davis, from the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine. And today I'm going to talk to you about um, my research on the quest for pacemaking cardiomyocytes for engineering biopacemakers. So there has been a great interest in regenerative medicine for the heart because, as you know, cardiomyocytes from or cardiomyocytes or the heart muscle uh, cells and their stem cells, precursor cells, have very limited uh, proliferative potential. And this is well documented by the study that shows the turnover rate is actually quite low, um, less than 2% after you're 10 years of age. Um, so to replace these cells that are lost due to disease or age, um, there needs to be a source of human cells. So one possible source is human pluripotent stem cells. And these cells have the ability to self-renewal um, and they can also expand um, indefinitely in culture and differentiate into any cell type in the human body, including uh, cardiomyocytes or heart muscle cells, the infamous one being the human embryonic stem cells. Um, but my lab only works with human-induced pluripotent stem cells that have the same self-renewal potential and the ability to differentiate in, into any cell type. Um, but then these cells originate from cells from people's uh, skin or blood, so they don't have ethical problems. And these cells are reprogrammed or reset back to this primitive state by overexpressing these combination of transcription factors that can reset the, the cells back to a pluripotent state. So once we get the iPSCs or the human-induced pluripotent cells, how do we get to contracting cardiomyocytes? Well, we copy, of course. We copy how the organs develop in embryogenesis. Um, by looking at the chemical environment during the development. So two well-established differentiation protocols from Dr. Sean Polachek's lab and Dr. Gordon Kelly's lab, uh, these protocols pretty much shows that if you take the iPSCs and you add BMP or active NA or um, some kind of wind active in the first stage, you can get the cells become mesoderm and then followed by some kind of wind inhibitor in the later cardiac mesoderm stage, you can get these cells eventually become cardiomyocytes. However, the yield for these cells is not 100% cardiomyocytes. You get other cell types such as endothelial cell, fibroblasts, and on top of that, not all cardiomyocytes are the same. So you can largely categorize um, functionally, um, uh, you can categorize the cardiomyocytes largely by their, function, but by their functions into pacemaking and contractile uh, subtypes. Um, so the pacemaking cells, um, they're really there to generate act action potentials or to set the heart rhythm. So for uh, applications such as to engineer a bio pacemaker, you would need these cells to be able to self-generate action potential. And they tend to be smaller and have fewer myofilaments. Um, on the other hand, if you want to replace cells for heart attack, you would need more contractile cells. And these cells tend not to have any uh, ability to self-generate action potentials without outside electrical stimulus, and they tend to be larger and have more abundance of myofilaments to generate contraction to pump the blood. So based on our work, we have shown that you can get ventricular-like, atrial-like, and pacemaker-like cells from iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes, and we can identify these largely by their action potentials or electrical signature from these voltage changes from these cells. And based on the, the phenotype, we can see that pacemaking cells shown by the orange bar is actually the smallest fraction of these subtypes. 
So how can we increase this pacemaking fraction? So something that we have tried is biochemical differentiation, looking at the biochemical environment. So one study has shown that if you eliminate this PX2 transcription factor, you actually can get development of another pacemaking tissue in the left atrium as well, as shown by the green arrows here. So we think that by knocking down this PX2 expression, uh, transcription factor expression, then we can actually promote development of pacemaking cells in our differentiation. So we decided to block something upstream, the nodal pathway that controls the PX2 expression by a small molecule SB431542. And so we added this SB small molecules in a stage-by-stage -stage manner to test along the differentiation timeline. And then we found that uh, when we add in the cardiac mesoderm stage from day differentiation day three to five, we um, don't see an adverse effect on the differentiation um, as assessed by troponin T expression, which is an indirect uh, assessment of differentiation efficiency of cardiomyocytes. And then we also can see from the video below, um, comparing to the control cells shown on the left, when we added SB, you can see the contraction rate is actually much faster and the, the contraction amplitude is actually smaller. And this is a good sign that we're getting more cardio, uh, pacemaking cardiomyocytes. And then we did some flow cytometry to uh, assess the cells. Um, so first we looked at the yield of uh, cardiomyocytes, which can be uh, determined by the number of troponin T positive cells, which is shown on the box on the top side of the, all, all the plots. Um, and then you can see that uh, when we added SB in both IPS lines that we tested, there's actually an increase in the yield of cardiomyocytes as shown by the, the red bars. And these cells are actually smaller than the control cells, and that's an indication of pacemaking cells. And we also looked at some pro-pacemaking transcription factor, T-box 18 and T-box 3, and you can see uh, when we added SB, it shifts the histograms to the right, and that indicates that there's a higher expression of TBX18 and TBX3, and we quantify these uh, increased expression in two different cell lines, and you can see relative to normalized baseline, um, there's increase in the expression of these transcription factors after we added the SB molecule. And then next, we verified the protein expression of shocks to pro-pacemaking transcription factor shocks 2 showing green, and also I1 showing red. And when we add SB, you can see there's increase in uh, staining in the nuclei of the iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. And similarly for TBOX3 and 18, there's also increased expression in the SB differentiated cells. And then the ultimate test is really functional tests in these cells. So we looked at the action potentials of these SB differentiated cells relative to control cells um, using whole cell patch clamp that look like the, that measures the uh, voltage of the cells. And we also did this with another method that recorded the cell optimally with the voltage-sensitive dye. Um, so I won't go too much detail into the data, um, but you can see the action potentials from, from the SB-differentiated cells are actually have more um, action potential that resemble more like pacemaking cells um, compared to the control cells. And another factor that could possibly affect cell characteristics is really the microenvironment or the extracellular matrix that surround the cells. So extracellular matrix is basically a network of extracellular matrix protein that can create this scaffold that surrounds the cell. So we hypothesize that the extracellular matrix, uh, extracellular matrix or ECM from the pacemaking tissue uh, or the sinoatrial may be a more suitable microenvironment 
to promote and maintain the pacemaking phenotype in the iPS-derived cardiomyocytes. sites. So we took a stepwise reverse engineering strategy to first look at what is different about the ECM in the sinoatrial with the pacemaking tissue. So we uh, harvested the tissue from a pig heart and we identified the pacemaking region by a region that's negative for this contractile marker connexin 43 and positive for this pacemaking ion channel HCM4. And then we decellularized, which means we extracted, we chemically ex- extracted the resonant cells out to leave only a matrix scaffold behind. And then we, we assessed the ultrastructure of the matrices and we found that the sinoatrional matrix are, have these more rope-like uh, fibrils compared to the left ventricular matrix. And uh, when we measured the stiffness uh, of the sinoatrial um and that's quantified by this stiffness factor, Young's modulus. You can see the sinoatrial matrix um, shown by this distribution of uh, moduli. It's actually higher um, or more stiffer than the left ventricular matrix. And we also did mass spectrometry to look at the biochemical composition of the proteins in the matrix. And in general, uh, there's more abundance of fibrillar collagen in the sinoatrial compared to the left ventricular ventricle. And also there's actually abundance of elastin as well, stretchable elastin as well. And we also did immunostaining to look at distribution of some of the major uh, extracellular matrix proteins. Um, so based on our findings, we came up with this hypothesis that if you consider the sinoatrial matrix as a composite material, then the pacemaking cells are actually enclosed in this stiff tensile-bearing uh, fibrillar collagen region while their elastin uh, fibers that spans the stiff region. So when the heart is undergo active contraction, the elastic region will actually undergo deformation more readily than the stiff region, and that this will protect the cells inside the stiff region from mechanical strain um, compared to the cells that are actually in the left ventricular matrix. The cells will actually experience more strain because they're not as well protected by the matrix. Um, so this is just showing a force plot. We think the force is actually higher um, imposed on the cells in the contractile region than the pacemaking region. So we decided to test to see if we can use the sinoatrial matrix to better maintain and protect the pacemaking cells. So we took the porcine heart, we again decellularized the sinoatrial matrix um, and also the left ventricular matrix as a control. Um, and then we differentiated our IPS, uh, IPSCs to cardiomyocytes. And then uh, we recellularized or basically seeded the, the matrices with our iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. So now we have recellularized sinoatrial heart tissue and also for control, we had recellularized left ventricular heart tissue. And in the end, we'll tr- actually transplant this into the diaphragm of uh, immune-compromised uh, mice to basically use the mouse as a bioreactor to subject these tissue constructs to cyclic mechanical contractions at a uh, uh, rate that's similar to a fetal heart rate, but without any electrical impulse interference from the resident muscle cells because the skeletal muscles from the diaphragm do not electrically couple with the cardiac uh, muscle cells. So we don't have to worry about any electrical interference from the skeletal muscles. So right after recellularization, we noticed that the iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes showing the red um, that were seeded onto the sinoatrial matrix they organize themselves into clusters, uh, very much like the native sinoatrial at the very top. Versus those cells that were seeded onto the left ventricular matrix, you can see they form these aligned layers, very much like the native 
left ventricular matrix. And then we also did some functional measurements looking at the calcium uh, dynamics using this GCAMP uh, calcium sensitive dive, uh, sensitive probe that look at the frequency of calcium changes. Um, and then what we found is the rate of changes in these uh, the cells that were seeded onto sinoatrial is definitely much faster than those on the left ventricular matrix, um, as shown on the bottom right graph. And the amplitude is also smaller. So these are uh, traits that are indicating pacemaking-like cardiomyocytes. And then we transplanted the sinoatrino uh, and the left ventricular recellulite uh, tissue constructs into the diaphragm of the mice. And then we see even after two weeks of cyclic mechanical strain in the mouse, uh, we can still see the iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes shown by the red still clustered um, or organized like that in the native sinoatrino. And those in the left ventricular um, matrix, those cells actually stay aligned after two weeks. And then we looked at the pacemaking uh, markers in these iPSC-derived cells that were recellularized onto the sinoatrino matrix versus the left ventricular matrix. So for pacemaking markers TBX3 and TBX18, there's definitely higher expression of those uh, transcription factor in cells that were recellularized into sinoatrino and, um, versus the left ventricular matrix. And the pacemaking channel HCM4 is also has, has higher expression in the iPSC um, that were grown in the sinoatrial matrix relative to the left ventricular matrix. And then the contractile marker, Connexin 43, um, is actually higher in the left ventricular matrix. So all these are indicating that we have a more of a pacemaking phenotype in iPSC cardiomyocytes that we cellularize in the sinoatrial node. And the last thing we did was, again, to look at the functional aspect of these cells. So again, we used um, the GCAMP uh, calcium-sensitive probe to look at the calcium dynamics in these cells. And as you can see in this graph, that shows the frequency of automaticity in the iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes in the sinoatrial matrix is much faster than that in the left ventricular matrix. And also the amplitude, again, of the calcium transients is actually smaller. Um, so again, this indicates that the iPSC cardiomyocytes seated in the sinoatrial matrix um, maintained the pacemaking phenotype better. Um, so the take-home message is that pacemaking cardiomyocytes can be derived from iPSCs, and we can, we can direct the subtype by looking at the chemical environment, um, such as playing around with the nodal signaling that I talked about, and also providing the right microenvironment, such as the extracellular matrix from the pacemaking tissue. Um, and then stem cells really opens the door to possibility of engineering biopacemakers from human pacemaking cardiomyocytes. And I would like to acknowledge all the people, um, past and present, from my lab, and also my collaborators, doctors Nipa Van Chami Monvat, Dr. Shaodong Zhang, and James Chen. Um, and this work has been funded by a CIRM Discovery Grant to the Lu Lab. Thank you. I guess perhaps while we're waiting to get some questions, I might start off by asking Deepak um, if one came up with some drug that could in fact alter the potential calcification of aortic valves, would you uh, anticipate giving this early in life to everyone who had a bicuspid aortic valve? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Uh, as I mentioned, about a third of patients with the bicuspid valve will get calcification over a, 
over the coming decades. So it's not, it wouldn't be, if it's a relatively safe drug, it would not be unreasonable to do that as a prevention. I didn't mention, but we also did test in mice uh, in situations, this drug in situations where the calcification and aortic valve stenosis was already present and asked, does the drug either slow down the progression, which would be good in and of itself, or actually completely arrest it. And uh, in a small number of mice we've treated, the drug actually arrests and in some cases even reverses uh, the aortic valve stenosis. So I think uh, in high-risk groups, I think uh, prevention would be reasonable. Uh, but what's more, even more encouraging is that I think even if uh, calcification is detected, usually we just then observe it over the years and when it's bad enough, we operate. And in this case, uh, if you just stopped it, those, most people, I think, ultimately would not need any surgical intervention. Yeah, no question. My patients uh, who have uh, a modest or mild degree of aortic stenosis are always asking me what they can do to prevent the progression. And uh, yeah. to have a, a drug that would do that would be such a colossal uh, advance. Uh, um, I can hardly wait to see how you move yeah. forward with that one. Thank you. Thanks to, th thanks to CERM. Wouldn't have happened otherwise. Great. So perhaps Dr. Liu, while we're waiting for some additional questions, uh, I might ask you, are you envisioning a bio pacemaker as a patch? Some yeah. kind of, uh, a fully organized tissue that would be implanted into the heart? Yeah, that is what we're envisioning because I think if you inject the cells um, into uh, the myocardium, it will be subjected to this mechanical strain. And then we know the microenvironment can actually affect um, how the, the cell phenotype and also the cell function. So we think we need to implant basically the pacemaking cells in some kind of scaffold that can protect the cells from this mechanical strain once you um, transplant it into the myocardium. So just a, a kind of, of interest, uh, <laughs> hopefully we think of some kind of catheter procedure that could do that because most patients might say, I just as soon have the pacemaker. Right, yeah. I'm sure you can do that along the way. So, Mark, nice work, uh, even though you escaped from San Diego. Um, uh, very good work. So, virtually all these wonderful uh, cancer drugs that are being developed do have uh, an incredible amount of cardiotoxicity. It's a, it's a huge factor. There's a high percentage of, for instance, women with breast cancer who die of heart failure from the drugs that they're given to to treat them, how do you see, see proceeding with uh, uh, the nice work uh, you've done with uh, uh, the drugs that you studied? So I think the the easiest class of drugs to deal with are those for which the reason for the cardiotoxicity is due to an off-target effect. And as I said, it's hard to know the off-target effect of any of these drugs causing the problem. So that's why we use this phenotypic assay to drive the derivation of newer, drug, newer versions of the drugs that are safer. So a drug like panotinib, for instance, that we believe it to be an off-target effect, I think this could be taken forward 
through a pharmaceutical company development pipeline uh, back to back to patients, and uh, that's what we're attempting to do. I think many drugs can be tested early in their development. Cancer drugs tend to be te tested rather late in their development for cardiac effects, and I think that. Uh, and as a class, that perhaps is one of the pro their problems. So testing early so that this platform could be implemented to avoid these problems in the future, that would be helpful. But I think in terms of just taking a new, uh, a new version of an existing drug forward, they're probably, I think that's the, uh, one of the simpler ways to move back to patients. For the drugs for which it's an on-target effect, that's a lot harder to deal with. And it, just tweaking the drug um, is less... It's less obvious how to do that, uh, and so it's it's easier for the drugs like the kinase inhibitor drugs, for which we believe in many cases it can be uh, you can change the target space and improve the quality, improve the safety of the drugs. And your screening technique is really impressive. Is that hypothesis based at all, or do you have uh, <laughs> a huge number of potions that you? Put no, no, it's very much hypothesis based. Um, so, you know, we screen iteratively about 20 new compounds a cycle. And we go through, say, for the Mexilatine project, the test case, we went through about 180, um, 170, 180 compounds, but going through about 15 to 20 with each cycle. So each cycle, you make you make a, t a guess about where you, what you think you need to tweak. And then you, as you go through these cycles, you learn whether one part of the molecule provides a determinant that causes, say, a desirable effect or the undesirable effect. And the, so you slowly try to prune the molecule. So it's not as if we just randomly screen, you know, a gazillion drugs to look for a better version. Now we're going, we're taking, in this, in this re-engineering approach, we're taking an existing drug, looking at that molecule, looking at what's known about it, and then starting to probe different parts a little bit at random, and then ask, you know, have we tweaked the good or the bad effects? trying to preserve the good and then you and then and eliminate the bad so you can find hopefully different regions of the molecule different chemical determinants in different positions that are responsible for the good and the bad effects yeah so, so deepak uh, i might go back to you uh, um you've got a drug that's entering clinical trials and and there's always this tension as to when, when we are dealing with some kind of a stem cell preparation, when we're ready to go into clinical studies. How do you make that decision? Uh, yeah, we talked about two different programs, and one that is uh, uh, advancing towards clinical trials is actually a gene therapy approach that uh, uh, is uh, being advanced with uh, Tanaya. And so that, I think, uh, will uh, await uh, some further uh, large animal studies and talk studies. But you might have been referring to the drug that I mentioned. That we're exploring right now, I think, you know, we've discovered in, in human cells. We've tested in vivo in an animal model, uh, rodent model. There aren't a lot of other models in which to test this uh, before it goes to clinical trials. So we're right now... Uh, trying to think deeply about uh, what the best path would be. Obviously, there's some uh, there's some chemistry that has to occur. The we used a tool compound uh, that would not be the one that would go into a clinical trial. So there's probably more mostly chemistry refinement that needs to be done. 
but then at, at that point, I think it's, uh, it's not a lot more experimentally that we may do other than testing in different conditions. Uh, for example, uh, we are testing whether this vascular calcification, which is very similar uh, pathogenesis as valvular, whether this might uh, actually prevent also vascular calcification. Uh, similarly, in, um, in infants, which I'm a pediatric cardiologist, infants are sometimes born with a very thick aortic valve when it's bicuspid, even without calcification. This drug also, uh, in mice at least, uh, affects the thickness. And so we're testing whether in uh, neonatal mice that have a more severe form, uh, which, where we have a model, if it can prevent that thickening and neonatal uh, uh, aortic valve stenosis as well. Sure. Now, I, I assume that you don't have an MBA. And in, in terms of translating uh, a discovery it, into a clinical product, uh, there's, there's a lot of steps along the way in, in, in terms of uh, uh, getting approval and, and getting reimbursement, even getting the funding to do the clinical trials. Have you assembled the team or how have you gone about this? Has CIRM helped you? So CIRM has helped us uh, do all the preclinical work that I mentioned, and it would be really valuable if, uh, to be able to have CIRM support as they've done in other cases with actually the team that you mentioned. I think that's one of the greatest contributions of CIRM in addition to the financial support was actually the skill sets necessary to get and translate a, an idea into a drug through their disease teams and those sorts of efforts. So uh, we're, you're absolutely right. That's not our sweet spot. Our sweet spot's discovery. And uh, the kinds of efforts CIRM has been able to support in the past has been extremely valuable in uh, tra that translation. So we're searching uh, for that exactly right now. Right. So, doc, Dr. Liu, uh, I, I'm impressed. Uh, I remember uh, uh, the early days when generating iPS cells was just uh, uh, gee whiz. And, and uh, you know, it uh, seems to be translated to a so what now. I, I mean, I just generate a whole bunch of iPS cells and, and conduct my experiments. Uh, is that the state of the art at the moment? The, definitely the process has um, much simplified with, um, you know, um, improvements in how we can culture these cells, you know, because before, in when I first started, we have to grow these cells um, on mouse uh, fibroblast feeder layers. Um, so that was a lot uh, more work. Currently, we can just grow them on uh, a matrix gel. Um, and the media that uh, people have developed is also definitely a lot more supportive of the IPSC uh, culture. Um, but then I think the differentiation process uh, for these cells has definitely moved, you know. So initially it was just to increase the, the efficiency of just generating cardiomyocytes uh, from IPSCs. And now we're finding out not all the cardiomyocytes are the same and you really need a specific type of cardiomyocytes to treat a specific problem. Um, so we have refined this process of differentiating cells into a specific type of cardiomyocytes. Um, and I, I also see in a chat box that somebody asked about the, the number of uh, pacemaking-like cells that we get after addition of the SC molecule. Um, so in general, we see about two to three-fold increase 
in the number of pacemaking cardiomyocytes. And we are not sure if this, this number actually further increases after in vivo transplant in the mice, um, because that, that is a little bit hard to quantify. Um, but given that the nature of these immature cardiomyocytes, they have proliferability, um, we, we think there definitely could be proliferation of our iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes um, in vivo um, because we think there may be vascularization of our construct going on. That's actually uh, helped the culture of these tissue constructs we're generating compared to just the um, in vitro condition. Um, but there could be some cell death as well associated with just the transplant because initially they're transplanted into this uh, environment without vasculature. So it becomes very nutrient depleted initially. So we're not sure where the balance is at this point. Yeah. Thank you. So Deepak, we have a question here uh, as to whether there are additional mouse models of aortic defects besides notch. Uh, there are a couple of other uh, mouse models where the valves do get calcified. Um, and so uh, that is an interesting uh, question, and we have not tested uh, the drug that I mentioned on those animal models, uh, but that would be an interesting, interesting thing to do. We actually went directly to the sporadic human patients who do not have a notch mutation, and I think the key point is that we are searched for a drug that didn't affect notch, but rather the whole gene network that was downstream that would occur in a calcified valve. And, so we're not so surprised that uh, even uh, 20 different uh, patient samples uh, that it worked broadly in those. And so we haven't tested other mouse models, but we could. So I might, I might turn to Mark. Uh, you mentioned something about trainees and training grants. I'm impressed to see that all of you have a large number of trainees. Uh, are, are these by and large becoming independent investigators and is, is CIRM responsible for helping in that regard? I, I think that's one of the enduring aspects of the CIRM funding over the last decade uh, is that we've trained a lot of people under the auspices of training grants at all the different institutions. And uh, I think, you know, these were some of the best of the trainees that we had in the stem cell area. They were, they were comp they competitively applied to these programs. So I don't think it's a surprise that they've gone on and done, done fairly well. So, yes, I think we can all cite that they have, you know, exam good examples of them going on and seeding stem cell research uh, throughout the state and beyond. Um, I think, as Deepak said, I mean, I think a benefit of the serum grants was that they were able – they, they sort of fostered us pulling together these diverse teams and the trainees also then learned how to interact with, uh, with people of different disciplines. In my area, of course, there were engineers dealing with physiologists, dealing with stem cell biologists and clinicians. So uh, I think that was an, an important part of their, aspect, of their training. Okay, we have uh, uh, a question here. Um... For DPAC, does in vivo reprogramming cardiomyocytes have a synchronization issue due to heterogeneity? Yeah, that's also a good. Uh, that's also a good question. What I can say is that we have uh, uh, looked to see whether the reprogrammed cells can electrically couple with one another, and experimentally we can do that and see that they do. Uh, we've also looked, uh, still been concerned about. Uh, uh, the heterogeneity that might occur in cellular states that would make some more excitable than others. 
uh, and so have done telemetry both in mice and in pigs uh, and looked at a lot of EKGs and uh, do not see evidence of uh, arrhythmias uh, with the cocktails that I described in any, any of those models. Great. Another question, I'm, I'm not sure for who, but many kinase inhibitors induce death of cardiomyocytes besides uh, EFIS changes. Uh, uh, has there been a consideration of screening drug-induced cell death or damage of cardiomyocytes? Yes. So, uh, in fact, for the cancer drugs, I didn't go into this in detail, but for the cancer drugs, we screen not just the electrical, but we're more focused for those drugs on the cardiomyopathy effects. So one of the most sensitive readouts for many of the cancer drug effects is a loss of the contractile power of the cells. So that's you know, some, some change in the contractility of the cells. Is, we see that before we see cell at lower doses than cell death. Can you do dose ranging studies? Uh, These are all done in every screen I've talked about is done with uh, typically eight point dose curves and in replicates and in multiple differentiation batches of the cells. And um, also in, for the uh, toxicity studies in cells from different, different people. So we, they're pretty, pretty comprehensive studies. Uh, and we see patient to patient, you know, diff, person to person differences. That was a question that was sent to me on the chat. So I'll answer it online. Um, live. It, um, even among healthy donor if, uh, IPS myocytes, if we, ch if we expose them to a panel of cancer drugs, for instance, or other drugs, we can see differential effects among healthy donor. You can then, if you look at this on the same genetic, you can say, well, that could be due to lines and genetic backgrounds. If we take the same genetic background, we introduce disease-causing mutations that can sensitize to certain classes, but not other classes of drugs. So you can, you can see both genetic background effects, as well as uh, you know, disease-causing gene variant effects. Okay, well, we're, we're in the closing minutes of, of this cardiac program and, and our discussion, so perhaps I'll ask uh, all three of you for your last take-home thoughts about uh, future directions uh, uh, in cardiac cellular therapy. There's a, there's a tremendous need, number one, that's evident as heart disease remains the number one cause of death. I think that's key to remember. I think uh, there's a, a lot of potential for regenerative medicine, whether it's through uh, cellular transplantation that's advancing still or cellular reprogramming approaches. And then I think you've heard uh, many instances of how uh, uh, drug discovery uh, and drug toxicity things can be enabled by stem cells, particularly cardiac stem cells. And so I think uh, a lot of that will result in a more uh, a tailored medicine, greater precision medicine, uh, and our ability to maybe let cancer take over and be number one and heart disease be number two. Mark? I would just echo that. I think that's very well said. I think the... Uh, from the, using the cells as a therapy or teaching you like Deepak has done about how to generate, how to develop uh, or stimulate an endogenous regenerative response. I think that's certainly was, uh, you know, at the core of the serum mission. I think the uh, using the cells like we're using in drug discovery, um, I think that's um, 
that opens up a lot of new doors. It brings the patient early on into the pharma pipeline at the very beginning, right? So you have people and their diseases uh, up, up front. So you're treating a per- basically a human, realistic human model at the very beginning, not a reductionist model. So I think it's, it's quite valuable to, be, to bring the stem cell technology. And then, of course, the straight modeling and putting in the tissue, like uh, Deborah talked about, I think that, uh, you know, that, that's what we had all thought would work for regeneration. Might not be so great for um, myocardial regeneration, as Deepak pointed out, but for specific tissue types and putting it in like Deborah was saying, I think that sounds very exciting. Dr. Liu? Um, yes, I, I definitely think the stem cell plays a huge role in regenerative medicine and also just drug development in general. Um, and I definitely think there's a, um, a need, you know, for certain type funding, you know, because uh, this is more product driven and very different than how the NIH uh, funding agency is, um, is focused on. So there's definitely a great need for product driven type uh, funding. Well, as Deepak suggested, cardiovascular disease continues to be the number one killer in our society. And uh, while we've come up with incredibly effective devices, uh, there's a need for more pathophysiologically uh, oriented approaches to uh, disease management and cell therapy in any of its multiple forms, really, I think, is the most exciting direction uh, to go in. So I want to thank the panelists and, uh, and uh, bring this session to a close. Thanks very much.